Hello and welcome to the 14th episode of the Highlighter Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Icero. This podcast is where you, the loyal subscribers of the Highlighter newsletter, get to talk about the articles and issues you care about most. Over at the newsletter, I'm happy to report that there were 14 new subscribers this week. It was sort of it was sort of a record, I think. So if this is the first time that you're listening to the podcast, I welcome you. And if you're coming back for another episode, I'm very, very happy that you're here too. This podcast is getting better and better each week, thanks to your support. I'm excited to introduce to you this week's guest. I get to interview my friend and former colleague, Nicholas Wu, who serves as a data and evaluation associate at Partnership with Children in New York City. For more than 100 years, Partnership with Children has been helping New York City's children overcome the severe and chronic stress of growing up in poverty. His entire career, Nicholas has worked toward social justice, particularly for children living in poverty. He was a teacher at Leadership High School in San Francisco, an academic director at Hybrid Voices in the Bronx, and a community school director in Brooklyn. You're going to like what Nicholas has to say. Let's get to that interview. Hey, Nick, how are you? Hey, Mark, I'm good. How are you? Doing great. Uh, I just want to thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, first of all, you're over in New York, and also you have just completed a mega 130. Was it 130 mile bike ride? Uh, yeah, I guess technically it was like 133 point something, but um, 130 works. You did it, and it, it's pretty it's pretty crazy because. Um, the highlighter listeners out there, there's definitely the teacher beast uh, movement that's happening over here with Aaron and Olivia, but it seems like you're doing it over in New York as well. So that's great. Um, I wanted to ask you about your current role. Um, you are a data and evaluation associate with partnership with children in New York. And uh, for the listeners, can you say a little bit more about what that role is and what you do? Sure. So it's a new role, um, and I primarily provide data analysis and data collection work for our 14 community schools. So in New York City, um, the Blasio started the community school initiative three years ago, and it was an effort to basically turn around um, failing schools or chronically struggling schools. So the idea was to follow the community school model, which is to turn the school into a hub for the community. And it understands that in order for a student to succeed, it's not just about academic interventions, but oftentimes, um, or, or I should say that the students don't exist in a vacuum and that there are other social, economic, political influences or factors that go into a student's um, academic success. So, for example, we provide eyeglasses. We provide free uh, vision uh, screenings for all the students, and we provide glasses. So at my school, out of um, 350 students, uh, over 120 students, I believe, got free glasses. 
Um, and we also partnered with healthcare providers to provide, um, uh, to hook them up with insurance, so with Medicaid or any other insurance policies that they were eligible for. And then we also connected families with um, housing supports, uh, homelessness prevention programs, food pantries. Um, we actually were able to secure a pantry at the school um, and all these other services and programs that provide support for not only the student but also the family. Um, so this initiative um, started off with 150 schools and this year there are now 216 schools, I believe. Um, that are in this initiative. And so last year, I was a community school director um, at one of these community schools in Brooklyn. And so I did it year and basically facilitated the programs and initiatives um, at the school to provide these resources to the families. Um, and then after that year, I came into this new role um, as the data and evaluation associate. So um, we are trying to provide more data um, analysis so that our schools can do or, or can make data-informed decisions. Um, because nowadays it's not so much about like proving to people what we do, um, but we have to prove to people why we do it. So you know, the whole education industry, if you will, or field is going towards, right, data-informed decisions and like, what does that mean? Um, so what I'm tasked to do is kind of create data systems, uh, data collection systems, and provide technical support so that our community school directors and social work directors at our schools can um, uh, make decisions and um, provide interventions or adjust programs as needed so that we are trying, we are optimizing our resources the best we can. Yeah. Yeah. And Angelina, um, who is also a loyal subscriber and you should totally be friends because that's uh, the work that she does as well. And I wanted to ask you, because it seems like this, this approach with partnership with children, as well as in New York is, um, a, a really systemic view and a systemic approach to what's necessary for young people who are living in poverty. And, and you know, as a person, you have a master's both in education as well as in public health. You've been a teacher, you've been an academic coordinator, and then now you're in this role as well. What have you learned over the years as far as what's needed um, to to make sure that we're actually educating and serving the needs of young people? So when I first, I started off as a teacher, and when I first uh, got into the field and kind of the reason I went into education was I went to teach high school students because high school is, for the most part, the last safety net for our young people before they enter adulthood and they lose a lot of protections. Um, so I went in kind of thinking, all right, you know, I, I want to support students to either go to college or to have some other plan. And um, I quickly learned that 
for many students, by the time they got to high school, they were already either on track to go to college or not to go to college. Um, and that for those students who were kind of in between, um, that you had to, and the school had to invest a significant, significant amount of resources to support that student and that family to go towards college, for example, or to like have a plan. Um, so right off the bat, um, I quickly learned or felt, I should say, that um, the classroom, while it is absolutely imperative to have effective teachers in the classroom, that it's not a sustainable solution. Um, so very much like the public health approach, if you have a well that is infected and people are getting sick from drinking that water, you could provide uh, treatment for everybody in that town or city or village, whatever, and then they'll be okay. But as long as they keep drinking water from that well, people are constantly going to be sick. So um, I, you know, I've always had a kind of systems thinking, I guess, or like a big picture kind of uh, mentality. And so then from there, I started learning about um, adverse childhood experiences and social determinants of health. And from that, that brought me into um, public health. Because um, I think for lack of a better phrase or way of putting it, um, if students are coming in from low-income communities of color that have historically been oppressed and disenfranchised, that in a way it doesn't matter how we formulate our lesson plans if on a neurological, physiological level, their prefrontal cortex is not developed in a way for them, for students to be, uh, to be able to engage with the academic curriculum right, with all this 21st century uh, push and things, things like that. So if our kids' brains aren't even uh, wired to, uh, to work with the material that we're giving, right, then we're, you know, fighting such an uphill battle. Um, so we need to have a more systemic approach. Um, we need to address trauma. We need to have trauma-informed schools. We need to have people who work with young people understand that about 50% of Americans experience at least one traumatic event and that that number goes way up when you're dealing with communities of color and low-income uh, areas where some estimates are up to 100% of people in these areas experience multiple traumatic experiences. Um, and that it is difficult for a family to uh, support their child in education if they don't have a home, right, or if they don't know where the next meal is coming from. Um, and that as a society, right, not just education, but as a society, what can we do? How can we change our system of doing things so that we are striving towards equity instead of equality. Um, so that's been kind of my uh, arc, if you will, to um, from being a, a classroom teacher to um, doing, trying to do more uh, systems level uh, work um, 
Yeah. Yeah, I have. Yeah, this is very interesting because I have two follow-ups on that. First, it sounds like what's happening in New York is much more robust. And you are from the Bay Area, so you can speak to this perhaps. But it seems to me, and maybe I'm just biased because I'm more on the academic side, that it doesn't seem like the systems or that the resources are as robust here as they may be in New York. Would you agree with that? And what do you think it takes to actually have um, a partnership that's meaningful to provide um, the young people and their families and also schools the resources that they need? It all it, it always has been, and when we are in a capitalist system, it's all about the money. You need money. Um, and it's interesting how whenever it comes to, you know, helping or supporting, liberating communities of color, it's always about like, oh, well, how can we do this on a uh, shoestring budget, right? Um, but when we talk about investing in big tech, for example, you know, like we're fine with cutting a bunch of stuff in order to, or, you know, cutting social services, cutting or cutting taxes, I should say, um, to like invite people in so we can make more money. Um, but when it comes to education and, and healthcare and things like that, it's like, how do we cut? And because when we cut, those who are most vulnerable are the ones who have, are most impacted the most. Um, so I do agree with your with the assessment that in the Bay Area, there just isn't as much happening um, than here in, in New York. Um, and I think part of it has to do with the fact that New York education system is just ginormous, right, with over a million kids. Um, and, yeah, there's everything is just scaled on a much larger uh, extent. Um, so there needs to be money. So in the community school initiative, uh, the city is pumping in well over $100 million into this. And, of course, right after, you know, just a couple years, a lot of people, rightfully so, it's extremely important to hold people accountable to show that, you know, like what, they're, what they say they're doing is actually what they're doing. Um, but, you know, a bunch of people immediately went to, okay, $100 million to support, you know, 150 schools. Is this working? Are we seeing gains in you know what this model claims to do? Um, and initially, it's yes, there are some gains, um, but the gains that we want to see, you know, they're not going to come in two years. You know, like the gains that we want to see are going to take five years, seven years to to see. Um, so when we talk about these these systems of partnerships. Um, I think it's much more difficult in the Bay Area because the cities, while there's like a bunch of cities, right, they're all fragmented and they all have their own uh, school systems, for example, and, and things like that. So when you have New York, you, you can have, you know, for better or for worse, you, have, you can have an economy of scale. And for the DOE, for them to do something, it affects 100, I'm sorry, um, 1 million kids all at once. Um, and you can partner with healthcare providers. You can partner with um, eyeglass companies to provide these glasses. And on a scale where it economically makes sense for all these different uh, partners. Um, so I wonder in the Bay Area how that can happen 
given the um, just the fact that it's on a smaller scale. Um, I think there were, it requires or it would require partnership amongst cities um, and that, you know, cities independently can't, they would struggle to, to do this. Yeah, I wanted to, I also wanted to ask too, I can totally now see why you are uh, working as a data and evaluation associate and also, especially because you are systems minded, um, about how exciting it must be to sort of see the impact that you'll be having um, on this system. And I guess I wanted to ask you, for somebody who is currently in the classroom um, as a teacher, who has maybe that visceral transformative feeling when, they, when, when he or she sees a student, you know, make it to college or, you know, that very deep, strong um, feeling of, of success, but then overall just feelings of failure over and over again. I guess my question to you is, what would you say to a classroom teacher to sort of um, be be looking at sort of the system and also to be participating in the classroom, but to also be looking at the bigger picture? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's very much how I felt, um, both in the classroom and just doing, you know, youth work. Um, you know, you would have your, your wins and um, oftentimes, unfortunately, there are more losses than wins, um, or there are, I should say, more struggles, not losses, but no, more struggles. Um, and it's very difficult to, um, you know, keep that hope alive. And I think one of the ways is to be connected with other professionals in other fields. Um, I think which I know is extremely difficult to do if, you know, you're, let's say you're a high school teacher and, you know, you have 100 students and you have to call families and, um, you know, follow up with students about, you know, their grades and homework and, you know, tests and all that stuff. And you have to talk to the counselor, you have to talk to the um, special education teacher, you know, to coordinate and make sure that, you know, everything is aligned with the IP, or, you know, the list goes on about the ridiculous number of things that a, a traditional classroom teacher needs to do. And then to have this like extra layer of, well, you should talk to people outside of education. Like I, I understand um, how in a way like un insensitive that suggestion is. Um, but I, I, I think that one of the problems or, or struggles and barriers in education is it's, it's very siloed. Um, and that as an educator, I wasn't, and, you know, when I did my teacher education program at a quote-unquote elite, um, elite and prestigious university, um, there wasn't a single class, or let me take one half a step back, and this program touted to, you know, focus on urban education, there wasn't a single class that talked about gangs for example, and like how that might impact classes or you know, just violence in general, neighborhood violence, which seemed ridiculous when I did work in Santa Ana and with my middle school students, every single student in three or four classes that I worked with raised their hand when I said, you know, how many of you know somebody who's either been in a gang or been affected by a gang, right? So there's a disconnect between what the what our teachers are being trained to do 
with what the realities are in terms of what teachers actually deal with. You know, like when we talk about um, students not being able to, like, you know, they're not test prepping, you know, they're, they're, they're not studying. Well, again, going back to housing, right, if you have 10 people in a two-bedroom house, there, it's kind of difficult to have a study space, right? And for education to not be sensitive to those struggles and those realities, um, you know, how can we expect students to, to, to do what we're asking them to do? Um, so I think teachers and educators need to be in tune with what's happening in other fields. You know, like one of my big um, uh, things, I guess, or one of my big foci is around trauma and how a lot of that educate or a lot of that research and information is coming out of the medical field, is coming out of social work, um, is coming out of psychology, you know, things like that. Um, is not coming out of schools of education. And I think there's, there, there's a disconnect there. And as educators, in order to be effective in the classroom, to be effective as a school, as a district, you know, that we need to look at what's happening that, what's happening to students outside the classroom. And I know that there's a big tension there where teachers or educators say, you know, I'm a teacher, not a social worker. Um, that may be 100% true, but if we aren't aware that in order for students to be academically successful, they need to be social, socially, emotionally, social, emotionally um, attuned and have a strong sense of self and be mentally stable, you know, we can't access that critical thinking, right? If we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if we don't provide those basic needs, they can't get to critical thinking. So as a profession, um, I think we kind of need to reflect on if our purpose is to educate and to empower people and empower communities to liberate themselves, then we need to look at, on a biological, economic, political level, what are the factors, what are the influences that allow that to happen? And the answer can't just be more tutoring, and it can't just be, you know, let's rephrase how we do our do-nows. Um, there, there's much more to that, and um, I think we can only get those answers when we collaborate with, um, with people in different fields. Nick, this is totally amazing. You know, we're, you know, this show, we're supposed to talk about an article, you know, that came in the, that, that was published in, in the highlighter. But um, this by far, I have to say, I mean, we could continue, but then it would be like an hour or two. But this, I have to say, is very intriguing. And not just for, I think, the rest of the highlighter listeners, but also for me personally, um, you and I have had all these conversations about why, what is it that we want to be doing? Um, and you've definitely pushed me in this conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you. And I really want to say that, um, you know, you've been one of my, my mentors um, and kind of your perseverance and like everything that you do has always been, um, inspiring. So I just want to thank you for that. And also, you know, thank you for, for having me.
Hello and welcome back. It's Mark again. I just want to thank Nicholas yet again for being our guest today on the podcast. He really got me thinking about how making changes in education alone just isn't enough. In fact, after we recorded the episode, he sent me a text in which he wrote, If I was a teacher, I would be advocating for housing, health care, and employment reforms before education reforms if I really want to see changes in my classroom. Thanks, Nick, for coming on the show. Before I close this episode, I'd like to thank all of you again for listening, and I'd like to encourage you to let me know what you think of the show. You can leave feedback, positive or constructive, over at www.highlighter.cc about. Or, if you're moved, you can write a stellar review of the podcast over at iTunes. One last thing. If you happen to be noticing that the quality of this recording is improving, it's all because of my podcast coaches, Joel Key and Omar Bryan. All right, that's about it for this week. I'm signing off until this Thursday when the 114th Highlighter Newsletter comes out promptly at 9, 10 a.m. Have a great week.